Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Summitry Project. Our work, research, teaching can be found at uh, globalsummitryproject.com. And there you can uh, review our podcasts and uh, videos and uh, uh, increasingly a wide variety of articles, including now the first special issue of the e-journal Global Summitry, um, where we focus on strengthening uh, the G20. Our research projects include uh, the China and the West Dialogue and also um, the Sustainable Development Goals Agenda 2030. It's my real pleasure uh, to invite into the virtual studio uh, my long-standing colleague, uh, Lim Wan Hook. Uh, Lim Wan Hook has just recently returned to Korea after two years of research and teaching at SAIS in Washington as a visiting professor. Lim Wan Hook is a professor at the KDI School of Public Policy and Management there. Um, he has long been involved in uh, global governance research and uh, acti other activity. And um, he um, helped to formulate the G20 Seoul Development Consensus for Shared Growth. Uh, he has many publications, some on the G20, some more broadly on Korea, including Opinion Polarization in Korea, Understanding the Drivers of Trust in Government Institutions in Korea, and a number of others. Lim Wan Hook uh, received his PhD in economics uh, from Stanford uh, University. I was very keen to invite Lim Wan Hook into the virtual studio following uh, the recent uh, trip to Asia by uh, President Biden of the United States and of course his meetings with leaders from Korea, uh, from Japan, um, and of course also uh, from India. So let me introduce to you uh, Lim Wan Hook. I don't know whether you saw, uh, oh, you saw my revised and expanded version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. Okay, so, did. Good. It's good to know that my colleagues <laughs> okay. have comments. Okay, All right, here, here we go, Kyle. Right. All right. So it's a pleasure to welcome you into the virtual studio, Liman Hook. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm very good. So um, let's uh, start off here. Um, President Biden, as you know, uh, completed his first Asian trip, started with uh, Korea, in fact, and and your new president visiting him, uh, Yoon Suk-yeol. Um, what do we make of that, his decision to go to Korea first in his Asian trip? I think it was symbolic, and it showed that the uh, Biden administration uh, recognizes uh, Korea's increasingly important role in supply chain security and investment in the United States, especially in semiconductors, mm -hmm. batteries, and uh, electric vehicles. And uh, uh, this was uh, demonstrated by Biden's meetings with uh, Lee Jae-yong and Jung Yi-san of uh, Samsung and 
uh, Hyundai Motor Group, respectively. Yes. Yeah, and and they they have uh, you know uh, uh, investment plans in Taylor, Texas, and Savannah, Georgia. So it was a way of um, appealing to the uh, U.S. electorate that you know uh, Biden was doing something on creating jobs and uh, securing uh, these key uh, products for the future. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Let me take a quick detour from 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 this uh, particular area, which is the the immediate visit, and go to a statement that um, uh, our uh, the president made uh, and caused quite a commotion uh, back here in North America and I assume everywhere else. And that was that he would uh, uh, be willing to intervene. Uh, uh, if uh, China invaded Taiwan. Now, to be fair, of course, this is not the first time that uh, Biden has made that statement. However, uh, you know, the, the cumulative aspect of that, it seems to uh, undermine the position of what the American policy, which is being followed now for several decades of strategic ambiguity, seems uh, less ambiguous than before. So what what do you th what does Asia, Korea in particular, make of, of this statement? Well, uh, salami slicing uh, has been going on for some time. Right. But uh, Biden's statement does seem to undermine <clears throat> Uh, the U.S. official position of strategic ambiguity or constructive ambiguity and uh, raises the risk of uh, Taiwan declaring independence, uh, believing that the U.S. would intervene to defend Taiwan, Taiwan if uh, China retaliated by invading Taiwan, right? And uh, I think it's somewhat concerning because uh, recall that the uh, official U.S. position on one China policy since the Shanghai communique Back in the has 70s. been to note, yeah. uh, note that uh, all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain this but one China and mm -hmm. that Taiwan is a part of China. Right. So if uh, Taiwan now decides to declare independence and say there's one Taiwan and one China, right, uh, that's not going to uh, sit well with China, right? The, the People's Republic of China. And uh, it seems like uh, Biden's a statement uh, encourages that possibility, right? So it's, it's somewhat concerning. Uh, uh, but yeah, fair, uh, although yeah. I, I presume there's no indication that the, ta uh, the Taiwan government, current Taiwan government, which is actually more independence-minded than the opposition. But nevertheless, there's no indication at this point that that is a, uh, an immediate or realistic strategy. So I guess the question becomes, how much do you think his statement really relates not to China-Taiwan, but to Russia-Ukraine and the, con you know, the consequences, in fact, of the United States and the uh, NATO allies making it clear that they would not participate, not uh, in, uh, directly involve themselves in this conflict between Ukraine and Russia? Um, I mean, one could argue uh, for Ukraine too, uh, Zelensky uh, 
had misread the situation just as Putin uh, had made miscalculations too, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think it's a good good dynamic. And I think there's a value in maintaining strategic ambiguity. Uh, so, you know, that's what I'll say about that. Okay. So you see it as, relatively speaking, quite separate in that his statement yes. wasn't, wasn't really you know, kind of uh, a reaction to uh, the position that NATO and the United States took uh, with no, respect no, to the Russian. No, okay, okay. Uh, <clears throat> what what can, you know, kind of you kind of summarize, what can you conclude from his trip to Korea? What, what, what does the Korean, you know, kind of uh, cognoscenti to take from this first visit uh, from Biden as president and also your new president. Right. I mean, it was viewed as uh, very successful on mm-hmm. uh, both sides, right? Uh, it was uh, uh, viewed as a success, uh, both from Korea and from the United States. But I, I think it's interesting to compare the joint statement between uh, the new president, uh, Yoon and Biden, on May 21st this year, mm-hmm. with the joint statement between uh, uh, ex-president uh, Moon and Biden exactly one year ago uh, f- uh, from that date. So that's the and former the president. Thing, yeah. It, it, the so, and the president. interesting thing is the two joint statements are almost the same, except for this year's section on the uh, Indo-Pacific uh, uh, economic framework, uh, mm-hmm. which remains a very vague. Mm-hmm. So, I, th- I mean, there's a sense that you know Biden has this Indo-Pacific strategy, but it's been something of been a holding pattern mm-hmm. um, uh, without real uh, tangible progress, uh, despite all the summits and repeated references to competition without catastrophe. So. <laughs> Well, that's the big picture take. Oh, I, I, uh, you know, okay. I well, you know, you've raised the Indo-Pacific strategy, so let, let's uh, excuse me. Let's talk about that a, a little bit. I do want to uh, also direct you towards the his next stop, which was, of course, um, in right. in Japan. But but what? How how does Korea see this Indo-Pacific strategy? I mean, it's what is it? Is it uh, economic? Uh, is it security oriented? How how does Korea kind of react to uh, the promotion of this uh, Indo-Pacific strategy by the Biden administration? I think most Koreans uh, feel much more comfortable with the term Asia Pacific, mm-hmm. uh, which includes both continental and maritime powers, uh, with its focus on promoting broad cooperation. Uh, rather than the uh, Indo-Pacific, which limits its geographic scope to India and the West Pacific, really, uh, with its focus on deterring China. So, and uh, uh, given Korea's uh, geopolitical interest as a divided peninsula in Northeast Asia, I mean, Korea feels it's uh, important to uh, reduce the uh, reduce the risk of uh, conflict or war between continental and maritime powers, mm-hmm. and uh, promote cooperation. 
And uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy uh, has some, you know, concerning dimensions uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, you know, uh, um, uh, with its uh, security focus and uh, 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 its uh, fairly, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, fairly uh, negative attitude uh, toward China. Well, okay. So, you know, it would appear that the, the administration, you know, talks both with respect to um, the strategic aspect, which almost invariably mean a focus on China, and then on the economic aspect. And yet there's been very little up till now with respect right. to to the economics. So, um, you know, is is Korea's reaction in part because of that focus, which tends to be more China focused? And how does Korea react to that, given its obvious placement in in the region? Right, right. Well, um, I, I guess one progress, if you could call that, uh, mm -hmm. from the Trump era is that uh, the February document on uh, Indo-Pacific strategy right. uh, seems to rule out regime change, right? And it says uh, our objective, that the Biden administration's objective is not to change the PRC, People's right. Republic of Public China, China. Right. but to shape the strategic environment in which it operates. So right. that's different from the Matt Pottinger uh, Mike Pompeo formulation during the Trump administration, where uh, they would often uh, talk about the Communist Party of China, uh, CPC, rather than the People's Republic of China, PRC, when referring to China, right? So, so I, I think there's a progress in that regard. But still, uh, Biden's in the Pacific strategy is too narrowly focused on mobilizing allies and friends for U.S.-China competition without catastrophe. So it, it still remains problematic, in my view. So, so that early formulation by people like Jake Sullivan and, and others, uh, where, you know, that's how they, how they described uh, their view of the growing rivalry and competition with China, right? Right. So right. You, you still see that as as really being still a, a, a significant part of what they how they view the so-called yes. Indo-Pacific strategy. Yes. Right. But because, uh, uh, I mean, the, the document, the, the Indo-Pacific strategy is supposed to cover both security and non-security aspects. Right. But right. It is, uh, but I think it is more of a framing piece. Uh, that portrays China as a regional bully, bully, right? yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, and not much else. So, I mean, for example, uh, China is a manufacturing hub and a large market that accounts for more than fifty percent of global semi uh, semiconductor demand, right? Mm -hmm. And that raises some interesting questions about the wisdom of supply chain strategy, supply chain security strategy that focuses only on the uh, supply side, because even if you build you know, a robust uh, supply chain, um, you know, semiconductors, uh, yep. at the end of the day, you have to sell these semiconductors somewhere, right? <laughs> so you have to look at the demand side as well as the supply side of 
you know, a supply chain security. Yeah. But 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 you know, China is uh, uh, is you know uh, portrayed as a regional bully basically in this document, and it doesn't really go into any you know serious discussion about cooperative security arrangement or people to people interaction or economic engagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's inclusive. So that that I think is problematic. Okay. So let's look at that more of the, at least for the moment, uh, the economic aspect, and in particular, right. because in Japan, which was the stop after Korea, uh, the announcement was made about the initiation of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the IPEF uh, framework. And uh, apparently 13 uh, states have agreed to join in this initial discussion around the kind of the four pillars, which for, I mean, it kind of varies a little bit, but certainly infrastructure, um, including questions about corruption and and so forth, Uh, supply chain resilience, which you've raised already and the importance of that, Uh, clean energy, obviously the uh, transformation of uh, fossil fuels and uh, the digital economy, uh, including uh, you know uh, digital trade and trade more generally, um, they seem to be the elements. Thirteen nations agreed to initiate uh, discussions, and and included in that, of course, um, was Korea. So how does Korea see this um, new set of negotiations, particularly in contrast to, let's say, uh, the CPTPP, which was the earlier, or TPP, the earlier trade and investment agreement that uh, the Obama administration had, had negotiated and then the Trump administration pulled out of, and the RCEP, uh, the regional uh, agreement, again, trade and investment, in which China is a major participant. Right. So how does it see this IPEF uh, in the context of all of that? Well, um, it's missing a lot of details. So I I think it was important for Korea to be at the table and participate actively uh, in the discussion and standard setting and other issues. Right. So um, uh, uh, the way I uh, understand the Indo-Pacific economic framework is that Mm -hmm. There are four uh, pillars, right? And you know, first one has to do with trade, basically connected economy, and that's where the USTR will lead uh, the United States effort on setting right. standards for, you know, uh, digital trade, uh, labor standards, environmental standards, and so on. The mm-hmm. second pillar is a uh, uh, resilient economy or supply uh, supply chain uh, security. Right. And, uh, you know, Department of Commerce will lead the U.S. effort. And yep. it's ma- it mainly has to do with, like, you know, friendshoring, standard setting, and uh, possibly export controls, in my view. Mm-hmm. And uh, the third pillar is, uh, uh, you know, as you said, infrastructure, clean energy, and decarbonization. Uh, once again, it's uh, going to be led by uh, the uh, Department of Commerce, but it's not clear to me uh, what the role of uh, other departments, like Department of Energy, uh, right. uh, 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 is going to be on this front. And finally, the fourth pillar is uh, the the fair economy, the uh, mm-hmm. tax and anti anti corruption. Yep. 
Yeah. And once again, the DOC Department of Commerce is supposed to read the effort. But uh, once again, I asked, uh, what is the Treasury's role in this uh, as well? So um, I, I think the U.S. approach is uh, problematic, uh, really, on three accounts. Uh, first, it's basically trying to introduce new obligations by uh, establishing rules and standards on digital, environmental, labor, and tax issues, mm -hmm. uh, among others, without offering tangible tangible benefit, uh, benefits through uh, improved market access. Uh, and this is especially problematic when countries like India and Indonesia would like to restrict cross-border data flows, right? So right. if you're not giving any um, prospective benefits through uh, improved market access, but would like to impose or introduce new obligations by establishing standards, how much, uh, you know, how much uh, positive response are you going to uh, get is, uh, is my question. Mm -hmm. the, second, uh, the second problem I see is that United States is really starting a new process instead of relying on established institutional arrangements that will uh, that deal with uh, similar topics. I mean, one option could have been to work with the ASEAN or, or even use the uh, CPTPP framework uh, on many of these issues, but it's uh, really uh, starting anew, right? And uh, related to that is the third problem because you know, United States, uh, I'm not sure, is going to be able to sustain high-level attention and labor-intensive uh, bureaucratic work uh, to bring this variable geometry and interagency process to a successful conclusion. So, mm -hmm. yes, uh, it took a while for the Biden administration to launch this uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework, but uh, I... I have some, you know, serious questions about how it's going to uh, uh, make progress. Okay. Well, and in one final aspect, obviously, uh, of the Indo-Pacific uh, strategy is, of course, uh, the Quad. That is the right, right. Uh, the relationship, the the uh, uh, relationship developed between Japan, India, the United States, and Australia. Yeah. Um, it was my understanding that, you know, there are many working groups that have now been generated uh, out of the Quad and that there was some uh, understanding that Korea might well participate in, right. in some of those uh, discussions, not be a part of the Quad itself, but nevertheless be involved. Um, uh, is that in fact the case or how does the Korean government uh, see uh, the Quad itself and their relationship to it? Well, I, I can't speak for uh, the Korean government, government okay. but uh, the way I look at the pod, um, I mean, I uh, go back to uh, Hastings Ismay, the, the first secretary general of the NATO, and uh, he had a nice take on uh, the NATO's objectives, right? Uh, essentially, uh, British perspective, really, but basically said NATO is to keep the Americans in, the Russians out and the Germans down. Down, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, an analogous formulation for uh, the Quad from an American perspective would be 
get the Chinese out, uh, mm -hmm. the Indians in, and the Japanese up. Okay, and I I, I think it, it'll be quite difficult uh, to get the Chinese out and the Indians in, given uh, the way these two countries operate and given the history uh, of their involvement in the uh, in the region. Mm -hmm. uh, it's relatively easy for Americans to get the Japanese up by changing sure. the nature of uh, the Coke in the Bottle uh, alliance and, get, uh, and by giving uh, Japan a more uh, proactive role uh, in security matters and so on. But then uh, that would raise some questions about the historical baggage for you know, neighboring uh, Japan's neighboring countries in the regions. So, uh, I, I, I mean, in my view, what the region needs uh, is not an Indo-Pacific version of NATO, but an uh, but a uh, but an Asia-Pacific version of uh, OSCE. You know, uh, the Organization for security and cooperation in Europe, you know, going back to the Helsinki process, right, which yeah. would address uh, the security dilemma and build peace and prosperity through increased people-to-people -people interaction and economic engagement. And uh, the Korean government uh, has tried to find some common ground uh, between its own policy, uh, new Southern policy under the previous administration, which focused on India and uh, the ASEAN countries mm -hmm. on the one hand, and uh, the Indo-Pacific uh, strategy of the United States and Australia in particular. So uh, uh, they tended to focus on non-security uh, issues and uh, try to uh, promote cooperation uh, on things like uh, uh, development issues and uh, maritime security and so on. Uh, and I think uh, the, the new government uh, also is uh, trying to find some common ground uh, like that. And um, uh, I, I think if Korea is invited, uh, then Korea is uh, willing to take part in working group meetings, you know, working groups on things like uh, supply chain security, vaccines, right. and right. so on. But, I mean, invitation has to be sent out to Korea to do so in the first place. <laughs> and uh, if, Korea to, uh, if Korea is to join the Quad as a formal member, I mean, the, the name of the organization, uh, the name of the group, has to change uh, first, right? I don't know whether it has to be Quint or some other uh, uh, more imaginative name. But, yeah. So, I, uh, but what's important there, your your image, uh, your your contrasting image to to it is the OSCE, and right. by that, I presume you mean inclusion of China, because yes. the yes. implication of that is that this is not a kind of uh, divisive. Um, uh, alliance a la NATO, right. but something quite right. quite different, yeah. right? I mean, the Quad could be a useful caucus, if you will, for, for the members, right, in deterring right. China. But for the peace and prosperity of the region, I think you need a cooperative security arrangement uh, like OSCE. Okay, so, okay. 
and that that's missing obviously and not part yes uh, currently of the, of the architecture to the extent that the Biden administration has right. built built it if not very firmly right. uh, in, into into the Asia Pacific or the Indo-Pacific right. well uh, well I want to thank you so much for joining us and giving us some insights into uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy as in part seen from Korea but in, more importantly from your perspective and I want to thank you for that uh, it's okay. been a lot of fun. <laughs>